In our remaining four or five episodes from the Old Testament, we're going to look at the last three history books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and the last three sticky note prophets. These three history books and three prophets cover a time period of just over a century, from 538 to 432 BC. Except for the book of Esther, they cover what happens to a small group that returns to Judah to rebuild the temple, the capital city, Jerusalem, and their nation. We learned in Daniel's visions of the parade of human history that there would be four kingdoms. The first, Babylon. That's the one that took Judah captive and the one Daniel was living in when he received that vision. We learned in Daniel chapter 5 that first kingdom came to an abrupt end when the Medes and Persians entered the capital city of Babylon. The night of Belshazzar's drinking party, the handwriting on the wall night. By the next day, Babylon was in the hands of the second kingdom, the Medes and Persians, under the leader Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great had a different policy than the Babylonians. He believed in letting captives return to their homeland. He hoped that there they would flourish and be loyal subjects providing food and other materials to his empire. So in 538, he made a decree that the captives from Judah could return to their own land, the Promised Land. Archaeologists have demonstrated this is exactly what he did. They've dug up a cylinder with an inscription on it. They call it the Cyrus Cylinder. It's from Cyrus the Great, and it declares that policy of letting captives go home. We also learn in Daniel that he had favor with Cyrus. Maybe that's why Cyrus added a bonus to the people from Judah. They could return home with all their gold and silver vessels Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple 70 years prior. Just a reminder about Cyrus. Isaiah had predicted him by name 200 years earlier in his prophecy. The book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, explain what happens next. A leader was appointed, a governor as it were, Zerubbabel, as well as a leader of the religious community, Joshua the high priest. They scrounged up just under 50,000 people that wanted to go home. We use the term remnant for this first group of returned captives. You know what a remnant is, right? You have a small room in your house, you want a carpet, so you go to a big box store. You ask them, where do you keep your remnants? There on the back wall rolled up are small rolls of carpet. Remnants are what come off the very end of the huge carpet roll, or perhaps what their installers bring back after finishing up a job. They're just a fraction of the large roll, and they're cheap. That's what happened with the captives of Judah. Just a fraction went home. There was a reason many stayed put. The word comfort and the term status quo come to mind. Or the song from World War II, how you gonna keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? The kingdom of Babylon, now under Medo-Persian rule, was quite a place. The remnant would be going back to mostly just fields. The cities had been leveled. They'd be leaving Paris for the farm. Another reason was the trip. It was 900 miles, taking about four months, and that was pushing it. But about 50,000 do return, and when they get there, the first thing they do is set up an altar, and they have a feast, the Feast of Booths. That's the one God said, pitch tents to remember how I took care of you in the wilderness. Shortly after this, there in the ruins of Jerusalem, they lay the cornerstone and blocks for a new temple. This too is allowed by Cyrus the Great. When they get the foundation laid, while all the youngsters are jumping for joy, this is a brand new beginning of the nation. 
What a gracious God and a new beginning. The really old geezers are grumpy. They're comparing the new foundation to the old magnificent temple of Solomon that they remember as little kids. We'll come back to those old geezers in a moment with the prophet Haggai. After finishing off the foundation, they get some local neighbors popping by. Most of these are folks that the Assyrians transplanted into this area after they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They're Samaritans, as it were. They come asking if they can help in any way. But Joshua and Zerubbabel and some of the remnant folks remember from their history how help from ites and pagan nations never really seemed to help much. So they said no. The neighbors then begin to intimidate them and threaten legal action. Finally, they tattle. They send a message back to the emperor. Their message basically says, they're rebels. Go back and check some of your records. You'll see. Stop this work. You'll regret it if you don't. They're right. I'm sure they found the records of Zedekiah. Remember him? The puppet king in Judah? The one who stopped paying taxes, ran to Egypt for help, requiring Babylon to come and put them under an 18-month siege? Yeah, that kind of stuff in the historical record. Or the people they left behind after destroying Jerusalem, assassinating the governor they put in place, Gedaliah, as well as Babylonian officials, and then fleeing to Egypt? Yep, those records. Cyrus issues a stop work order on the temple, and the remnant return captives stop work, actually for about 15 years. It's during this time the prophet Haggai shows up with his sticky note message. He basically wanders around Judah, then to Jerusalem, and he notices a few things. Hey guys, nice houses. Wow, they're even paneled. If you were looking at a house with paneling, you'd strip it off. But paneling in those days meant you had to go get it from far away, and that was pretty impressive. Anyway, Haggai said, that's beautiful paneling. But what's up with God's house over there? Why's that still lie in ruins? This brings us to Haggai's sticky note. It's this, psst, your priorities are showing. Haggai gives the governor and priest, Shealtiel and Joshua, a real earful. Then he adds to his message a little motivation. Hey, have you noticed how much you people sow in the fields and how little you reap? What's up with that, I wonder? Or have you noticed how you seem to drop a whole bunch of coins into your money bag? And when you get to the bank, it seems like some of them have fallen out? Hmm. Then I imagine Haggai walking down the street to the old geezers sitting in front of the ruins of the old Jerusalem barbershop. And he says to the old geezers, are you partially responsible for this project shutting down with your tears and your what-a-joke new temple? Here's a word from God. Size does not determine significance. Help these whippersnappers get back to work. And Haggai adds one more brief warning to the remnant with his own little word picture. Hey guys, I got a question for you. Now his question might not mean much to us or even sound a little weird, but to them, they got it right away. His question was this, if you take something that's holy, dedicated to God, and you touch something that's unclean, does the holy make the unclean thing holy? Think back to our Nazarite vow. If a Nazarite touched a dead thing, did the dead thing become Nazarite holy, or did it defile the Nazarite? Haggai's audience replies, the clean does not make the unclean clean. 
You're one for one. Then he asks this question. Does an unclean thing touching a clean thing make it unclean? Again, they get it right. The unclean makes the clean unclean. Haggai then says, I want you to remember that godliness is not contagious, but ungodliness is contagious. With my students, I use an illustration I heard from my own college professor. I come in from the barn after working out there and I'm covered in manure. I walk across my wife's clean carpet with my poopy boots and flop down onto her brand new sofa in my coveralls. Which is more likely to occur? The carpet and the new sofa cleaning up my boots and my coveralls? Or my boots and my coveralls dirtying the carpet and the new sofa? I'm guessing you get the point. They immediately resume building God's house. Shortly thereafter, the local Medo-Persia building inspector arrives. He wonders why they're not listening to Cyrus's stop work order. They respond, Hey, Cyrus gave us a building permit, and we'll continue with this until we get a cease and desist order, until Cyrus red tags it permanently. The building inspector communicates this back to the capital city. The new emperor, by the way, was Darius I or Darius the Great. Darius does his own little looking into the record. He finds that building permit from Cyrus. And Darius not only okays the project, he adds his own decree. Tax revenues will be gathered to pay for the expenses of the temple when it's completed. Then he adds this little warning. Anyone else who tries to stop this project, we're going to tear down your house and impale you on one of the two-by-fours. Nice, huh? You can do that stuff when you're the most powerful ruler in the world. By 515, four years later, the temple is done. It's smaller and less ornate than Solomon's, but it's finished. It is a monument to God's faithfulness to bring this remnant back to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have a big sacrifice. They celebrate the Passover as well as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It's 23 years after returning to the land of promise, and the remnant is off on a pretty good note. Soon, an expert in the law of Moses, one who studied the law, practiced it, and taught it to others, is about to arrive. His name is Ezra. But before he arrives in Judah to spiritually guide the remnant, something happens back in Persia that almost nukes God's entire plan for the remnant nation of Judah. In fact, for all God's people who are surviving children of Israel, that event is explained in the historical account of Esther, which we'll look at in our next word picture.